Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's so much that I loved about my time performing in a ring. All of my animosity comes from what happened behind the curtain. What three wrestling matches would you watch if you were stranded on a desert island? This is what I'm asking wrestling's best. In the ring, around the ring, behind the scenes, or behind a microphone. I'm Tom Campbell. Thank you for joining me on Cultaholic Island for another episode of Desert Island Graps. And they were fitting all by himself. Ducks in the clothesline. Amas is catching his spot. Mesmerizing. He's using hypnosis. Is that legal here? This can't be legal in international rules. Look it's at, working. He's hypnotizing the entranceway, too. Different, but effective. <laughs> what the hell is going How on? How is this legal? My friend, I am wonderful. Yes, yes, yes. I'm loving life currently, and I'm excited to be here today with you. Before we get into the interview, there's something that I must do for oh. you. Oh, okay. Let's introduce myself, my friend. I am venomous. I am vile. I am the master of snake style, the Cobra Supernova Ophidian. Apologies. We should have done that off the bat. That's uh, <laughs> that's how you roll with it. Do you... um? Is it frustrating when you have ring announcers that don't get that right? Uh, yeah, I have a shortened and a longer version for the ring announcers that do and don't get it right, or, you know, did and didn't get it right. What's, uh, what's yeah. the long version? Uh, I am the venomous and vile serpent of the Nile, the one and only master of snake style. It rhymes, you know, like there's a rhythm, there's a flow to it. It's beautiful. Oh. It's be- Who's your favorite ring announcer that's ever ring announced that? Uh, there are uh, two I'm really fond of, Emil J, he's the current GCW uh, ring announcer, and Larry Legend, who is, you know, has been all over for ring announcing in the um, eastern uh, side of the country. Both good eggs, both good eggs. So now we've now the introductions uh, are out of the way. We've got to talk about your cat. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you had a cat. Your cat went viral over the summer. It did. He did. Um, 
So uh, we've been posting videos of my cat playing the piano for a long time, for years at this point. Uh, he's been playing the piano since he was a kitten. Um, but we, um, we had an issue where he was um, becoming a bit overweight. Uh, the doctor, the vet, recommended that he lose some weight. So one of the things we started doing was obviously reducing his food intake and telling him that if he wanted food, he had to be more active, essentially by playing the piano and communicating with us. Um, and uh, yeah. So we posted video footage of that, of him stroking the keys, uh, demanding food from us, meowing very loudly while playing the piano, and it went viral. It ended up on a couple of TV shows over here in America um, and a ton of news sites. So uh, does it, I mean, when they put, when, when you, I'm, I've only seen a few of these that I'm aware of. Now, now you've talked about it, I have actually seen, it's weird when someone talks about a video and you go, I have seen that. I have actually seen that. Um, have you tried him with other musical instruments, or is it just a piano? It's just a piano currently. <laughs> we are a musical household. Uh, I'm looking over to my left, and there are uh, three ukuleles and a charanga hanging from our wall. And to my right is a bass and a guitar, an acoustic guitar and a bass. So, like, we are definitely a, a you know a household um, that has the instruments, but he only has interest in the piano. What was the first instrument you learned to play? Uh, I learned my first instrument over the quarantine or, uh, you know, throughout, I started playing bass. My wife is the musician um, in this family, but I, my first instrument was the bass. And then I learned how to play the glockenspiel as well. As, so you picked some random one. Well, obviously the bass is not so random, but the glockenspiel, like mm -hmm. what, what made you decide to pick up the glockenspiel? Uh, my wife has many instruments in our home. <laughs> uh, being the musician that she is and um so my wife does a weekly stream on twitch the lullaby lounge which is a nice and uh, i joined uh, in the lullaby lounge and have been helping her produce it i've been sitting on the you know like the, uh, directing the stream and um, being the button pusher and helping build the video packages and such but on the show i will also uh, play an instrument if uh the audience redeems enough point channel points in order for me to do so so if they do a call for backup i join in on instrument nice i did see you guys did a halloween stream together uh yes. recently are you big fans of halloween uh absolutely uh i it's my favorite holiday i think it's the only worth worthwhile holiday in the world like that is worth the entire world stopping what they're doing and celebrating you know um and uh, i absolutely love it i'm a massive um you know like horror horror movie fan and um and i i get dressed up every day of the year all day as you can see right now i know the audience can't see this but you know we're in a video chat and here i am sitting in my mask in my home yeah because there's the, like oh, like before we've even gotten to the wrestling stuff like it's, it's, there's a fascinating uh story just by where you are you're in a room which has got acoustic uh, guitars and instruments surrounding it and then behind you you've got your your paraphernalia for for mask building and and ring attire making because because you and your wife make uh wrestling attire as well and you make your own masks as well i know that much that's I want to get into all of that. Um, but before we do, we've got to get the ball roll, the ball rolling on this, Ophidia, because uh, we're going to take you out of that room and send you to a metaphorical desert island. And while you are there, you're allowed to watch three wrestling matches that will burn onto a DVD for you. So you have the the unenviable task of throughout this podcast, choosing three wrestling matches that you will watch while you are there. So what would you like your first wrestling match to be, Ophidia? Uh. Well, first, I'd like to uh, point out just how 
how nice your voice got there when you're like you're gonna you're gonna be on an island. We're gonna give you a DVD with three matches. Like, oh, well, thank you. You definitely ease of this transition for me. I thank um, you into the, the island. <laughs> I appreciate um, it. So uh, I I thought long and hard about this, and I went into um what I really love about professional wrestling, and I love obviously the fighting aspect of it. I want to see wrestlers do the moves that they do. I want to see wrestlers. Um, fly off the top rope. I want to see how they play to the crowd. Like I want every single aspect of it. I want there's, I love everything about pro wrestling from the wacky and, and comical side of it to the super serious, um, you know, technical side of it. But I think if I'm stuck on a desert Island and I do have to rewatch stuff, uh, uh, there are specific types of things I want to rewatch. And the first one I'd, I'd go with is John Cena versus Eddie Guerrero in the, uh, uh, the street fight they had on SmackDown, the parking lot brawl match they had. And the rules are simple. Anything goes in this Latino oh, heat. Oh, oh, parking lot brawl. Eddie with a shot with that U.S. title to gut. And this one's underway. And this is extremely dangerous. Well, this is just a fight. It's just a plain, good old-fashioned fight. Latino heat. Oh, street up to the parking lot brawl, actually. Eddie Guerrero demanded this matchup last week. Stephanie McMahon, the general manager, granted it after John Cena stole Eddie Guerrero's lowrider. Wow, and don't forget the embarrassment, the humiliation Cena calls Guerrero in front of his family and friends in his hometown a couple of weeks ago. Well, both Cena and Guerrero using these cars, these the hooks of these cars as weapons, and that's what you need to do. You gotta use these cars as weapons. This is like something right off the streets of Brooklyn. Yeah, tell me about it. Oh, Cena up off the hood into the into the windshield. This match is shot more theatrically than wrestling was doing at the time right this is like 2006 era of smackdown this is the paul Heyman, you know era kind of like post paul Heyman era of smackdown um and uh the way they're shooting cena where he's surrounded by cars you know in the in the garage wherever they're at and all the wrestlers are kind of surrounding him and they've got their weapons and stuff that they're just kind of hanging out and making it look super cool and edgy but the way that they're kind of circling cena and the way they zoom in and out on him is really theatrical and i loved that promo leading up to the match that they had which ended with Ed, eddie guerrero doing a frog splash off of one car onto the hood of another car you know like uh the, just so many little things pulling out a lawnmower and attempting to you know like to, to hit john cena with it uh the 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 fighting in the car when they're smashing each other's head into the steering wheel like some really basic comedy stuff but also just it's it was fun to see eddie guerrero in that setting with at the time a very serious john cena and the build-up to the match and the match itself was a blast the finish was great um it was one of those matches that when i saw it reminded me a lot of what i enjoyed out of martial arts films and stuff from or kind of like martial arts type fights and action sequences from movies and drew me right in you know like i was i was in love with it can you remember where you were when you watched it for the first time uh, yeah, I would have definitely been still living at home, uh, watching it with. Uh, usually, we watch SmackDown at the time with you know amongst our friends and stuff. So, um, actually, no, 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 I wouldn't. Uh, this is before I moved back home. So yeah, I was in my apartment. I was watching it with my uh, my roommates, uh, and we were just crazy hyped about it because we all loved it, John Cena at that time. Um, the you know the Thugonomics John Cena was top tier uh, Cena. 
how many of your roommates were were wrestling fans? Was it all of you, or was it just a few of you? Yeah, uh, the guys I backyarded with growing up, we we lived together as well. So my best friend for many years, who was also my tag team partner, Amasis, uh, lived with me for a period of time, as well as another uh, one of our uh, friends who got into pro wrestling, but necessarily didn't make you know out of um, very far into it. So didn't make it out of training. You um you, you said that your your backyard friends. So these were this was a backyard wrestling promotion that that you were part of. Yes. Um, did you, how did you guys all come together then to form this? Were you living together at the time and you went, let's just put on a wrestling show? So we started backyarding. Uh, you know, there was that massive craze uh, in the. I'll take it even further back. Uh, I grew up uh, with somebody like Amasis. Uh, we were um best friends growing up like we rode the elementary school bus together you know like that kind of friendship you know like we met each other in elementary school um or grade school uh for the british folks like you know first second grade kind of deal and uh we wrestled with each other in the parks you know like with our friends and stuff like kind of like in the way that kids wrestle you know they imitate their wrestling moves and then they you know they, they all catch raises and stuff and as we got older and started to hit high school you know as we got a little more athletic and we got access to things that we could buy ourselves like you know like a sum sum of income whether it was allowance or you know like starting to work like i had my first job when i was 13 so like i always had you know like some little form of income buying little things like weaponry and stuff and we started the former backyard fed uh so this happened very early in high school with a bunch of us in school uh my high school uh my promotion because i ran our backyard fed we had over a hundred kids from my high school come in and out of our backyard fed. And this was before we joined up with another group um, who we found via YouTube, which was the group that Joe Gacy and Alex Cologne and, and those guys were from. If you're familiar with uh, some of the CZW, you know, like uh, GCW types, our backyard fed consisted of Lince Dorado, Joe Gacy, Alex Cologne, Amasis, myself. Um, there was quite a few of us. And with with that, you say you you were running the the backyard fed. So so what did running the federation entail then? Uh, so we recorded weekly shows every Saturday. So somebody had to uh, organize all the hooligans that wanted to beat each other up. Um, so I played Booker. I decided you know kind of what matches, and I didn't necessarily say what storyline was going to happen between what characters. I just I kind of did it in an old school way, like. You guys will be in a program and we would build a monthly pay-per-view style show, like, a you know, a blow off show um, every month. And eventually we got to the point where we had so many of us and we were so active doing it that we added a Tuesday show. So we would record on Tuesdays and Saturdays. We'd record what we did and then we'd all sit together and watch it as a group on Saturday nights. And usually it would be at my house because uh, I had a large basement. Well, we were in high school. I lived in my parents. You know, my I had the basement in my family's house. Uh, so. We, we could be kind of noisy and, and hang out down there and not really bother anybody. Um, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. We go back to, um, to, to the match that inspired this whole conversation, John Cena and Eddie Guerrero uh, in the, in the parking lot very much felt like an early version of what we've seen a lot of this year as a result of the pandemic. It felt like the early version of a cinematic wrestling match. Yes. In the way that it was shot and in the presentation of it. Uh, I don't know whether you have you had a chance to catch many of these cinematic wrestling matches in 2020. Uh, so I haven't caught as many of the indie cinematic matches as I've wanted to, but I have watched the Undertaker, you know, one. I've watched the Bray Wyatt one. Um, and uh, yeah, I've enjoyed them. I genuinely liked the Bray Wyatt uh, funhouse match with John Cena a lot more than I liked the Undertaker 
AJ Styles match. They were both great. I don't want to take away anything from what AJ and Undertaker did. Like they played to his strengths. Uh, you know, they hit his weaknesses and it was a great, if that is Undertaker's final match, that was absolutely a great way to send off the dead man. Uh, the Bray Wyatt Cena match was more my type of cinema. Like that's what I enjoy watching when I consume a movie or a television show or whatever the case may be. Um, so like I enjoyed that on a, a um, like a cinematic level a lot more. Uh, we from um, from your backyard wrestling days, obviously um, you moved into into the world of. It feels wrong to say legit wrestling because it sounds like you had a legit operation in the backyard. So it feels wrong to say it that well, way. We but... did. And this is a wild thing to, to, to say. And I'll kind of give you a little bit more background on that. When I met up with Joe Gacy and those guys, they were in a separate backyard fed. So we met, watched our traded stuff on YouTube because at the time in 2004, 2005, YouTube was full of skateboard videos, cat videos and backyard wrestling. Because we're coming off of the craze of like the 2000, 2001 era of backyard wrestling DVDs that were released in retail stores and the video games that came out. So like we met up with these goods and they had a wrestling ring. So we have backyard footage of us wrestling in a ring. So by the, by the time we got to um, an actual school, which was at the time a joint Chikara and CCW school, we already knew how to hit the ropes. We knew how to bump. Not great, but we got to the point where they – because, you know, wrestling schools are split up beginner and immediate advanced classes kind of deal that they've moved us right from beginner to the advanced classes because you know we were taking it as serious as we could you know like we were doing as best as we could to replicate what we saw happening on the indies and tv you know and such so yeah you um you, from from philadelphia um where in the 90s and the noughties and back to the 80s as well wrestling scene's incredible in philly isn't it yeah yeah who was uh, who was somebody that you aspired to from the area when you were when you were backyard working? Um, so when we when I was able to finally drive, like when I had my own form of transportation or hanging out with friends who did so, my very first independent wrestling show uh, was an ROH show at the Murphy Rec Center, and the main event was a fatal four way between Samoa Joe, Dan O'Brien, Steve Carino. Um, excuse me. Uh, and I believe Homicide. The other matches on the show were Xavier defending the ROH title against Paul London. Um, it had, you know, like Jody Fleisch wrestling on the show when he was still with um, uh, that party group that all took the drugs. That's whose name I draw the blank now at the moment. Because uh, it had like Teach and Cloudy and, you know, like those type of guys in it. Um, Special K, that was their name. Uh, Special K it had uh, the Hit Squad, which is Monster Mac, you know. Um, like it, ha it was a great, great card. And then, you know, we're also going to CZW shows at the time, which had El Generico, Kevin Steen, Ruckus, Nick Gage, you know, uh, Zandig. You know, you get high, had guys like Quackenbush. You had guys like Hero, uh, Claudio Castagnoli. You had so many massive Chris Saban, Christopher Daniels. Like, I saw all these guys live and in person at the ECW arena. It was hard to not, you know, want to become a pro wrestler when – you can just drive over to the ECW arena. It's just a 15-minute drive from where I lived and see this top-quality, grade-A stuff. Like, I was there when Necro Butcher fought Samoa Joe when IWA uh, Mid-South did their show at the ECW arena. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's a very famous Necro-Samoa Joe match um, that happened in, like, 2005. Uh, I was there for the World of Worlds stuff, you know, when ROH was running, uh, competing against CZW in that time period, too. It was just a great time for independent wrestling. Um I absolutely loved, um, when I was younger, uh, Blackout, which was, uh, Ruckus, Eddie Kingston, Black G's, uh, 
and I also loved Chris Hero at that time as a you know as a as a backyarder coming in. When it comes to like local independent guys, um, while they may not be local to Philly, they're who I saw, you know, when I went to Philly shows. You uh, you went into training as and the training school that you went to was in the ECW arena. Yeah, I believe. What's the was there an intimidation or what was the feeling in your in, in the pit of your stomach on that first day of training when you walk into like these hallowed halls to learn the craft? Uh, it's surreal knowing that it's one thing being a fan, right? And you're there when you're when everything is set up and there's a barricade between you and the ring and, you know, like the, 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 there's curtains between you and the wrestlers. But that first day when you walk through the back door. You know, like the entrance where the wrestlers go into, you know, as a fan, you never see this. Like you never come into that port and just to have nothing there but a wrestling ring in front of you. You know, like it's a good 100 and 150 feet away or so from the back door. And you're like, oh, shit, like I'm actually here doing it. I'm sorry. I curse. I don't know if uh, I was allowed to. It's kind of stuff down. OK. Uh, and my first day going like the first class because they have they want you to see what it is first. But my first day I'm watching. Uh, a student um, do top rope her and Conranas with Claudio Castagnoli. Like that was my first day going to watch. And I was, it blew my mind. I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. You know, like that's exactly what I want. I, I, I can do that. I've done that in the backyard. Like I'm ready to do that with Claudio as my base. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, it was, um it was surreal, uh, especially because I had all my friends going into it. You know, like we all kind of came in at the same time. A little scattered because of money, you know, like some of us started a few weeks, a few months apart. But, you know, a lot of us came in together at the same time. It was a cool thing to experience with, you know, my friends at my side as well. Uh, from from all the friends that you, you went into training with, um, was there anybody in particular that stood out to you and you thought that's going to be a big deal? Because you mentioned you did backyard wrestling with Lindsay Dorado. And of course, obviously, he's part of WWE now. But was there anybody at the training where you went, actually, they're going to be great? Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even Joe Gacy, who we backgrounded with, is also under WWE contract now. Um, he was, yeah, he was recently signed. And um, well, Lindsay, we always do, even when we were backyarding, because uh, I mean, the kid was doing what he's doing now. I can't say his kid; he's a he's a grown ass adult. But he was doing the stuff he was doing now, like in the backyard, like this footage of him doing four fifties off ladders and stuff. You know, when we're when we just had cardboard and some carpet on the ground to protect us. Um, or not even protect us, to pretend to protect us. Um, you know, you had Lindsay Dorado, obviously. Like, I mean, I was also trained under, you know, Sarah Del Rey. You know, I, I trained with uh, Delirious. I trained with Chris Hero and all these guys. So, like, I was surrounded by eventual, you know, people that were, are now currently changing the business. You know, like Cesaro may not be a WWE world champion, but that dude's a stalwart of... You know, like the WWE scene, like, you know, whoever he's in the ring with that he's being put in the ring with to get a quality match out of. Right. Like the dude's like a six time tag team champion. Like they can put him in any position and he will he will succeed. Um, even someone like Sarah Del Rey, who is now the assistant head coach in NXT. You know, I got to train under her for years and all these experiences, all these uh, all these people I got to like I was surrounded by people that were going to become something, you know, in some way. When you began your training, is there a piece of advice that you were given that has stayed with you? Uh, there's something that I still live by today and that I still preach very much in my day-to-day -day life, and that's talent borrows and genius steals. 
who said that? Who who coined talent borrows, genius steals? Uh, it's not something that they came up with themselves, um, but it was something Mike used to say, and um, uh, I kind of took it to heart and spun it in my own direction, you know, and what it means. Um, but it was something that he preached to us about how we create what we do and what we ch- the choices that we make in the ring. Um, there's a lot of meaning behind that if you allow yourself to kind of dig deeper beyond the, you know, the surface level, what it means to steal, you know, because it's not about like stealing somebody else's moves or stealing somebody else's look, right? Uh, we are the, the sum. We are the a culmination of everything we've ever experienced in life, right? Every person you've ever spoken to, every media, uh, all the media that you've ingested in your life, every conversation that you've had, all the things that you've chosen, the choices that you've made, they've all kind of formed your identity. You know, they led you to this specific point here, right? We, as humans, we watch something, we listen to something and we kind of mimic it until we form our own identity right as children we respond to our environment we give back what we take in and that's kind of like how we move on in life and how we develop who we are and that should also exist in the way that you create art don't be afraid to allow the things that you enjoy in life to influence who and what you are when you're performing you know uh, and i can use myself as an example i can use even uh high level stuff like the undertaker there's a, a great story that was told about how the undertaker formed his sitting up you know, like Routini does in his matches. Like, you know, that's very iconic for The Undertaker now, which was taken from the Michael Myers movies, the Halloween films. He was directly told to kind of, you know, mimic that and take that. And, right, that is talent bars, genius steals. That's what I mean by that. Don't steal from within your own art form. Don't take from things that exist amongst your community. Don't be afraid to live outside of that in the real world and the pop culture and things that influence your life and bring it into what you love to do. Um because there's a good chance it doesn't exist, right? Like there are things that exist in comic books and movies and music and television that does not exist currently in the world of pro wrestling and vice versa. Things that exist in wrestling that doesn't exist in those other art forms. And it's okay to allow those things to kind of, you know, cross pollinate. Um, and you know, there's yeah. some truth to that because it's coming from the mind that created an Egyptian King Cobra in the wrestling world. <laughs> yeah. So you, know there's, you know, there's legitimacy to it. There are so many uh, little influences uh, in my in who who what and who and what I am from you know Serpentor and GI Joe to uh, the number two in these Five Deadly Venoms film he was the master of snake style uh, to stuff that is from like Clockwork Orange and, and Hellraiser uh, Mortal Kombat like I take a little bit of everything and bring it into what I was to create who I was because it's uh, was it was it. When you, because with with Shakara, obviously it it was its own very unique universe. Uh, was it when you were part of the Wrestle Factory with Shakara, where you formed that character? Was it something that was, um, was was a general overlay given to you and you built upon it, or were you completely autonomous with creating Ophidian? Um, there was some back and forth. Not everybody was uh, that lucky in that instance. There are some people that were told this is what you're going to be and this is how you should portray it. Um, I was not one of those people. Uh, I was essentially I was I had an email conversation. This was done via email, not in person. But, hey, uh, I don't know what you should be at all. What are your ideas? And I got lucky in that sense, because usually and this this is true of WWE this is true of you know, Ring of Honor, of, of, doesn't matter what wrestling school you go to, your trainers, generally speaking, will help you with your first gimmicks. Like, you don't want to be what you've been waiting to be your whole life, day one, because you're not going to be ready day one to do that, right? You're going to go out in front of an audience, you're going to have a lot of mistakes, you're going you're gonna to fail, you know, quite a few times before you succeed. And I don't mean like you're going to be terrible, but 
if you're brand new to something, you know, like there are there's a training wheels that you need to have before you ride your bike without them. Right. Like you need to have those moments. Um, that's even true myself. I was put under a, a different mask, a different gimmick for my first couple of matches to get those uh, first match shenanigans out of the way. You know, where you're nervous in front of a crowd, you freeze up a little bit. You don't know what to do. This is true of every performer, you know, that first year or so can be rough. Um, so, like, usually your trainers help you with that kind of stuff. But the difference with, like, Jakar at the time was that the training school led directly into the company, which is unusual for many promotions, the way that their setup was. Uh, so it was definitely a back and forth. And I got lucky with what I am was I got to come up with a lot of who and what I was. I just had to match it with Amasis, who was told, like, you're going to be the funky pharaoh. Obviously, how he chose to portray it was on him, but you're going to be the funky pharaoh. This is kind of like the direction we want you to go. And because we were best friends growing up and we were a tag team when we backyarded, we had natural chemistry. Uh, so, like, we had a bunch of stuff already in the pocket. So it was a matter of me kind of matching who I was to make sure it, it fit him. We had um, Still Life with Apricots and Pears on this podcast a couple of weeks back, and they told the story of how they got... Um, a message or a phone call saying you are now still life with apricots and pears and there was that moment that that period of time where there was a bit of confusion and a bit of not frustration but some concern because it was like i don't know what to do with this but obviously we we now know still life has gone on and they're becoming something incredible and uh when you because you're working as uh, there you go they're being honored today with a still life t-shirt that's what it's all about um, but when you were working as you were assistant trainer at the Wrestle Factory, did you have many conversations with talent who were, as a, in opposite to you, were given direction and said, "I want to do this. I want you to do this." Were you ever? Did you ever have to deal with talent who had reservations about that? Uh, I never had to be. I never had to say this is what your gimmick is. However, because my wife and I made the gear for every graduate out of the factory minus one or two that didn't have like traditional wrestling gear. There's some that, you know, like outside of the stuff that is, you know, out of the ordinary, we made every single graduate out of the school from 2015 or so forward, uh, 2014, 2015. And, uh, there were lots of conversations where we would design what the character would look like. So we had some say in this is the way it's going to look in the ring so i was able to have some of those conversations with with some of the students like well this is what you're going to look like and your movements and move set should match this kind of personality but i never tried to um to limit what they are because you don't know unless you experiment you know like you need to kind of have some uh control over the those kinds of things um and some of that control from others who ran the company uh wasn't really allowed so i tried my best to allow that you know that expression to happen when i was training uh, i will say that at least with the crucible stuff which i had a way bigger hand in and i tr i got to train a lot of those guys and spend my time with them that was where i was the most influential um that's where i was helping them come up with an actual style of wrestling that fit everything that we did and that they all matched each other there was a complimentary um you know move set amongst all of them and a, a, sorry, a complimentary uh, vocabulary that they all shared while performing um, and like the crucible stuff and everybody that came from that angle, all those guys were trained, uh, not primarily by me, obviously they went to the system, but that's, that was the crew that I would say was my, you know, they were a result of, um, you know, spending the most time with me out of the factory. 
we need to get to your second match for your DVD. So uh, we've started off with uh, John Cena and Eddie Guerrero in a parking lot brawl. What's your second match going to be, Ophidian? Um, so uh, my second match, uh, without a doubt, um, kind of a, a, a bit cliched, but uh, it's without a doubt one of my favorite and helped form my identity as a child because I was a kid when I, when I saw this match was Psychosis and Mysterio from ECW, their first meeting at the ECW arena. And Psychosis throw from the ring. Keep your eye on Mysterio. Up and over the top. And takes Psychosis into the first row with the plancha. Mysterio opening up the fuel tanks early. Up and over the top once again. Build that idea that when we, we were kids, we thought ECW was real, you know, and WWE and all that stuff was fake. Because, you know, they you had that conversation when you were in school, like, oh, ECW is the real wrestling. Yeah, I know? remember I had those same conversations over here. Like, oh, it's hardcore. It's real. It's blood and guts. It's proper wrestling. Yeah. It's like, is it? Okay, sure. <laughs> There's a moment where a suicide dive happens and Mysterio and uh, Psychosis are on the floor. And I suicide, like, uh, Tobey Conhilo. And they just start, like, like children just pie-facing each other and clearly talking shit to one another and there were little moments in that match like that and we know now like those dudes are great friends they were uh a peanut butter and jelly pairing you know like they were always together and have been together their entire careers up until you know they separated and they're like WWE type stuff but they were together for the nice first parts of their careers so they had that kind of chemistry with one another where they can kind of be dickish and brutish with one another and it feel and look like they hated each other, like there was a genuine rivalry that they had. Uh, and there was a realism to their high flying that you didn't necessarily always get um, when you watched, you know, like the, the light heavyweights in WWE or um, the other stuff that was kind of happening, like any like kind of like heavyweight stuff in WCW and stuff like that. People were drawn into, to, drawn into the edginess of it. And it was at the time as well with ECW, it was... Yeah. It was leading the way with that type of with, with bringing that lucha libre style into the U.S. It was really it was really pioneering stuff. I mean, as a as a as a wrestler, when do you actually when do you remember watching that for the very first time that match? I didn't watch it when it happened. So um, in the Philadelphia area, if you've and maybe somebody has spoken to you about this before, that's from this area. Uh, we had WGTV channel 48 or 19, depending on the part of the you know Philadelphia, New Jersey area you lived, that had wrestling on every night of the week. We had ECW on Friday nights, but on like Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, you'd have Fake UTV from CZW or had ROH in their weekly show, which I can't remember. NWA Wild Side, you know, was on WEW Extreme women's extreme wrestling and this was a little bit later but you know ecw was on local television and then eventually all the independent companies locally were on television so you would get reruns of stuff on um on late night television at like 12 1 in one in the morning and of course we tra tape traded around these parts um so i first saw it on a rerun on tv on late night and then found somebody that had a copy of it on tape that i was able to watch full on um, that I watched a little bit older because I saw that just kind of like by happenstance, you know, at, at night one night and thought it was like a fever dream of sorts. You know, like you're seeing this at one in the morning and you're like, these dudes are really doing what they're doing. I can't wait to go to school tomorrow and talk about it. But nobody else had seen it that night. You know, like, no, no, no. I'm telling you, this match was one of the best matches I've ever seen as a kid, you know, or, or on last night. And like nobody else had seen it until we found it on tape. With that match, is there something from from that particular encounter that stands out to you in particular? Like a moment uh, that moment. Move. 
that particular that moment where they're together on the floor and there's that like mini like kind of the mini infight they have amongst yeah. each other it's oh. it, it's it's again another reason why we believe that wrestling was that the ECW stuff was real. It was that yeah. same. It was that energy from it. Um, would that have been the first uh, with with that one? How um, how deep into wrestling at this point were you? Obviously, you were a, you were a fan of it. And you were doing the backyard stuff. But uh, what year would you have watched this? Did you say uh, this would have been late nineties? Uh, so this would have been around like you know. By the time Mysterio was picked up for WCW, we had rewatched this match. You know, like, that's when we finally got it on tape. Because at that point now, we we all knew amongst the friend group, like, oh, that's, you know, Mysterio. And it's not like he wasn't introduced to the United States audience before that. There was that pay-per-view that WCW did with AAA, um, where they had a AAA, the pay-per-view in America. Um, it was in the early 90s, maybe 1992. I believe in 93. I can't remember the exact year. And I didn't see that live. Like, I didn't watch that in the moment. But, you know, he was introduced to the world, you know, along with guys like Eddie Guerrero and stuff very early. Um, and uh, I've been a wrestling fan since I was, as a kid. I can always remember being one. My, my father watched wrestling, so I watched wrestling as a kid. Um, I know the very first match that sucked me in as a child. Like, not the one that I liked wrestling, but the one that made me love wrestling was Undertaker versus Undertaker at SummerSlam. Um, and not that that was a great match. As an adult, I look back at that and go, that was not a good wrestling match. But right, it was a moment that I remembered as a child because to me that was something that only happened in comic books or cartoons where there was two of the same person. You know, like <laughs> it blew my it blew my young mind because I liked The Undertaker a lot. And, you know, the angle at the time was uh, this is the real Undertaker, the, you know, the gray gloved, gray tied Undertaker. That was the real one, the purple one. You know, like, oh, whatever, he'd gone and disappeared and they come back and they're face to face. And it was it was it was a magical moment as a kid, you know, um, to see that happen. It's uh, the, the, a big part of wrestling. And some people who we've talked to on this show are, are deeply invested in the the actual literal wrestling on a on a in a match. But to many, as I'm, as I'm discovering, it's about everything around it. And it's the the suspension of disbelief. It is the characterization. It is the. The, the the comic book element of wrestling and it's something that chikara became very well known for like, i've often preached this that the thing that we remember most about wrestling to the casual fan to the person that we want to tune in to watch wrestling every week or to maybe pay a ticket to come see us the people aren't going to remember the moves you could be the greatest technical wrestler in the world we need those we need people that can keep that art form alive and have that on a show but what they're going to walk away from that show are moments you need a moment in a match where a dad and a, and a kid or a parent and a kid, I'm going to say dad, but a parent and a kid can both stop watching the match and look at each other in excitement and glee over what just happened. We, our job is to create a moment that the audience member can share with their loved ones. You know, something that, that a parent will want to make their child experience as well. You know, like, and that's really like, that's how we've all, for the most part, gotten into wrestling. That's how it kind of passes on generationally. Like, my father watched wrestling because he had moments that he loved and cherished, right, that he wanted his son to experience. You know, it wasn't unnecessarily a, a specific move, just like this persona in ring is something that gives me good memories, that that that, that uh, makes me feel good on the inside, when I, or, you know, makes me despise and I want to see him get punched, whatever that emotion is that they happen to feel, that they want their significant other, if it's a, you know, if it's a partner, or their children to experience with them. 
Um, and that almost always will trump what we do in a wrestling ring as far as the moves and stuff go. And this is also coming from a guy that will do rope walk Egyptian destroyers and dive off a balcony and stuff. Like I will, I love the wild stuff. I love doing technical wrestling. Uh, I love that aspect of wrestling, but I'm also aware of, you know, like at the end of the day, what we need to do in order to retain a wrestling fan and what's going to keep them coming back and bring their friends and family and such. It will always be characters like the, you know, that's why someone like the undertaker has lasted as long as he has. Cause like the, the you very rarely remember the matches, um, but you'll always remember the Undertaker, the character. Like he kind of goes beyond wrestling, does does that particular character. Mm-hmm. So you're right in what you say that it's so much of it is character and development. Um, and again, something Chikara is incredible was incredibly well known for that comic book style presentation. Um, when did you when did you find out you were making your Chikara debut? Um, so I had wrestled because of the backyard stuff. I had snuck into the Indies with some of my friends and had matches as early as 2006. How did you get away with that? Was it was it just did you did you fluff a little bit of what you already knew or did you just yeah, go well, I can come work? Because we had experience in a wrestling ring, we didn't have to fake like how to hit the ropes and stuff like we taught ourselves. We kind of I'm not saying we were great, but we we knew how to fake it. Um so, you know, we had local, we had a local wrestling school in the town I grew up in. I didn't grow up in Philadelphia proper. I grew up across the bridge, but I, I grew up like, essentially like what feel like a suburb of Philly because I would go there as a kid, you know, I would cross the bridge to watch. I grew up in New Jersey, but we had a, a wrestling school in Pensacon that was run by Doc Diamond. Um, and, uh, we just showed up at his wrestling school and we we're like, yeah, we kind of, we know what we're doing, you know, and he ran local shows, you know, like that ran in the, the cheerleading, you know, uh, facility. You know, on a Saturday night when they weren't using it, like in a turf field kind of stuff, or inside the gym that the school school was in. So we kind of snuck onto those shows and had matches, and he would throw us on as an, as an opener, you know, or like a pre-show kind of deal. Um, but my first match, uh, I knew a little bit ahead of time because um, my first match as Ophidian was on the road at a Mitch Ryder show um, in Indiana. Uh and uh, it was XCW, and I also wrestled for CCW that same weekend. But my debut match was me and Shima Zion um, versus uh, Lince Dorado and um, Corporal Robinson. Uh, it was uh, quite the match. Like obviously, Shima Zion would go on to do great things as well. Um, you know, he's currently with WWE. I, f- I forget his new Joaquin name. Wild. Yeah, Joaquin Wild. Assume, yeah, yeah. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it was such a wild match because like that was my debut match on the Indies as Ophidian, and I definitely it was not a good match. I got I got knocked out. <laughs> and, uh, really? Really remember it? Yeah. Uh, um, it's common with wrestling; we get concussions, and not not a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I was definitely knocked out by the finish, and I don't remember the match. I've I've seen it on tape, but I don't remember you know the match very well. Uh, I was gonna say if I you can recall the the move that did it or the moment that did it. Yeah, it was a flipping top rope leg drop where I was hung over the ropes, like, you know, on the top rope hanging into the ring. And the top rope leg drop, the back of the heel caught me in the head and just knocked me out clean. I don't remember the finish. I remember waking up in the back. Like, I was not knocked out to the point where I couldn't move. I just was not – there was nobody there was nobody home. My body was moving, but there was – the lights were, you know. Jeez. There's nobody uh, working the machinery in there. Would that Did that in any way – deter you from getting into wrestling but then i I don't know whether 
Because sometimes something like that can shock the system a little bit and you can go, well, actually, I don't know if I want to go any deeper into this. But did it deter you in any way? No, my um, about third or fourth week of training, I got I got sent to the hospital with a giant gash in my leg. Um, So we were practicing what's called a bandera. Uh, It's a movement where for those that are familiar with that, uh, when you charge at somebody while they're standing in the turnbuckle and they bend over and they as you're running at them, they lift you up and throw you out to the apron. Uh, that is referred to in Lucha Libre as a bandera. So practicing these banderas with uh, with Claudio as the person throwing us all over because he could do it safely. But at the time, I was like a buck 30. And, you know, he's a very strong and large man. So uh, when he gave me the bandera, I, I went way farther than I was supposed to. And my body landed on the metal post that is behind the turnbuckles. And it split my leg open and I had... Uh, had to have multiple doctors close my leg. I had about um, 15 to 17 staples to close it uh, on my leg. It was, and that was like my third or fourth week of training. And if that didn't deter me, then, you know, nothing was going to. Uh, I missed about a month of training because of it. But uh, it was, you know, that didn't stop me. And I've had I've had lots of injuries. Obviously, I'm, I'm retired now, but um, I've had lots of injuries in wrestling. And there are some that I'm like, I could have probably avoided those. Uh, like I could have probably avoided some of these, whether it's the jaw breaking or the broken arm, the torn MCL, you know, breaking both my thumbs, tearing the arch in my foot, multiple concussions. Is there one in particular that you can think of where you think, actually, I could have avoided that quite easily? Yeah, the broken jaw. The broken sure. jaw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was happening via 450. And at the time, it was when Amasis got into a car accident and had to retire for a little while. I got messed up from, uh, you know, bad car crash and... uh so I was doing the 450 in his honor. Um, but uh, I knew Sugar Duncanton was who I was wrestling at the time. So Sugar's on his back and I'm on the top rope. And uh, I knew he wasn't placed properly necessarily. And I can't say knew, but kind of had that feeling. I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, it was the finish to the match. And I did the 450 and the point of his knees caught me right under the chin and cracked. And I could have just, it's wrestling. We can call audibles. If I did any other move, the audience wouldn't have cared. Um but it was during a tournament show. So I was supposed to, I was scheduled to win the tournament. Uh, and uh, obviously it didn't happen because I broke my jaw in the opening match. Even though I won because of the 450, I landed on top of Sugar and the referee counted three. because I was knocked out on top of Sugar Duncanton. Uh, the referee doesn't know. You know, like I hit and my body was where it should be for 450 after hitting it. My second round opponent was AR Fox. And um, it was I wrestled a one minute and 30 second match with him. I went out there to do it, to put him over, you know, and, you know, just to kind of give him the win real quick so that there wasn't a buy in the tournament. Uh, that was on my own volition. Nobody made me do that. But I went out there with a broken jaw. I taped my shit up and went out there and did a minute 30 match. Yeah. Is it is it funny looking back and just thinking I, I should have I, how did I how did I will myself to do that when you're taping yeah. your jaw shut? I had to have my jaw wired shut for almost four months. Like, that was the result of the injury when I went to the hospital. And, like, yeah, I don't even know. Looking back at that footage, too, like, what was I thinking? Because I did a springboard in that match. Like, I did a springboard top rope tigre. And then it was like, why? I could have just – I could have done anything else. I could have not done the match. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like, we're young and dumb. And it's what we loved to do. We return to my conversation with the brilliant Ophidian in just a moment. More great wrestling conversations can be found at Audible. 
thousands of audiobooks ready for you right now, including by going to cultaholic.com slash audible, a great selection of wrestling books as well, including Dylan Hostel, a.k.a. Hornswoggle, Life is Short and So Am I, the amazing story from inside, outside and under the wrestling ring, read by Dylan Postel himself. How would you like that for free? You could do that by going to cultaholic.com forward slash audible right now and subscribing to audible for 30 days absolutely free if after 30 days you have not fallen in love with audible and its amazing selection of audiobooks you can cancel won't cost you a thing but you can keep the wrestling audiobook that's a gift from us to you for trying audible find out more at cultaholic.com forward slash audible Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Where's been one of your favorite places to wrestle? As far as like backdrop goes, I absolutely love the Channel Islands. And not because it's like the greatest wrestling promotion. The guys on the Channel Islands are, you know, a very small company. Um, there's nobody of name value that's come from there outside of Benjamin Carter, who is uh, currently just got signed to WWE. It's opened up the rest, the, the rest of the world's understanding of the Channel Islands with, with Ben yeah. getting a gig. Because people are going, oh, standout UK indie star. I said, well, is he in, from the UK? Because it's... It's technically in the French Channel, so he's not really ours. It's yeah, it's and if the people on that island aren't saying they're they're British, you know, like no, we live in Jersey, <laughs> we are our own people, we have our own currency here. It has blown from... the minds of so many around the yeah. world that, that Jersey and <laughs> the Channel Islands are in the it's just blown their mind. It's been brilliant. And fair play I, to there, him. There are so many people in the UK that don't know the Channel Islands are in the French, you know, like Oh yeah, like, some are in denial. Yeah. Uh, but i wrestled benjamin carter when he was 16 on a show you know in the channel islands uh he's also wrestled like frightmare and stuff too he's also uh uh quite a few of us um but i had a blast wrestling you know a guy like ben but that that place because that island is just so beautiful and it's so nice and it was the place that i would go to every tour and every single tour i went out to not even just uk but my european tours i would always stop there because it was a place i could decompress it was a place i had friends i made some really really great friendships on that island uh, with the people that worked there and i knew i could just go and just uh rejuvenate um it wasn't necessarily and there were great audiences because when i would go there i was the only person that did what i did when I would go there, you know, like I was the only, not master wrestler, but the only luchador there. You don't get many authentic luchadors. You do more so now. But when I started going to the UK in 2014, 
you know, we're few and far between. I guess guys that can practice, or sorry, not practice, that can perform authentic lucha in front of an audience. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's very unique. And, and I was always very receptive from that crowd. I got to help book some stuff on that island as well, which I really loved. Um, like I, I booked the first ever women's match on that island, which was between Heidi Lovelace and Kimberly. Um, and uh, like I got to do a lot of cool stuff there. Um, but that's like that's my favorite place to visit. My favorite one of my favorite places to perform ever is definitely uh, with the TNT crowd up in Liverpool because that audience is just it was it's great. They're 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 loud. They're abrasive. You know, they like to drink. Uh, they are they they were just a fun crowd to wrestle in front of um, man GCW crowds in Philadelphia, of course, like I absolutely love one of my final matches was against Nick Gage and I don't get booed very often, you know, especially at GCW. Like I still get cheered. You get the occasional guy that, that hates me and that's great because it's GCW, right? Like you get both sides of it, but man, uh, I was just relentlessly assaulted with boos that night and I loved it. Like there's something about that, that because if the GCW crowd doesn't care, they'll just shut the fuck up and not, they just won't say a word. Right. And they, they will, they're not afraid to tell you you suck. They're not afraid to chant boring. They're not, a t- you know, like they will let you know they dislike you. But if you can get them to boo you and like, you know, authentically do so and cheer you like you've earned a respect that will carry over throughout the rest of the world. I genuinely feel like if you can get over in Philadelphia in front of a crowd that will throw, you know, batteries at Santa Claus and and break break uh, beat up robots that are traveling the coast you know and and do all the shit that philadelphians do uh throw chairs in a ring you know at that public enemy um and fill it with you know uh it's just if you can get over with that crowd you can get over with any crowd in the world so how proud were you to become such a, a mainstay in philadelphia as part of chikara uh i loved it i, I enjoyed it a lot uh, i won't say though that that was my favorite time in wrestling I genuinely have enjoyed I obviously I loved what I did and I liked the people that I got to connect with, but I enjoyed my time more in other places, places like Demand Lucha in Toronto, companies like GCW, uh, all the stuff I've done overseas in Europe. Like there are experiences in wrestling that Chikara gave me the foundation without a doubt. Like I wouldn't have had the career I had if I didn't get my start in Chikara. But uh it was uh what I got to do with that foundation and where I got to go with it. You know, I, I wrestled in 20 countries around the world, um, which is something that very few people can ever say that very few people have been out of their own country, let alone performed in 20 around the world. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, I've got to ask about, um, about Jersey again and the channel. Islands yeah. Cause uh, it's just, it, you don't hear it come up in interviews very often. And uh, for, for, for yourself, when you say you like to go there and you decompress, um, tell me some good places to go in Jersey. Uh, so I spent most of my time in St. Helier, uh, which is the, I believe is their, the, like the main city. Like that is the, the capital. Uh, I can't say for sure, but, uh, I believe that's the capital. Um, cause the, the friends I had lived in St. Helier area. Um, so, uh, I loved going out to the beaches there and there's one specifically, there's a castle about a mile or so out in the water that when the tide is in, you have to travel to that castle by boat. You know, it's a tourist attraction, but you have to go out there. But when the tide is out, because it is like the world's largest tide exists in, in on Jersey, you can walk out on a concrete path that's just out in the middle of essentially the ocean. You know, like you're walking out into the ocean a mile or so deep 
uh, and it's just a beautiful sight, you know, like when the water's out and you've got all this like algae and stuff and like the sand and just these, these little pockets of what you normally don't get the chance to see because you can't, we can't see underwater that, you know, like we don't get to see the ocean floor. And while it's not the ocean floor, I'm not saying that it's, you know, it's, it's the same as going, you know, out in the middle of the water, but there's this feel to it that um, I don't, I don't feel anywhere else, you know, like a, a visual to it. There's something uh, about being so far away. Like my, my my dad will always say he loves when he's on holiday because he's so far away from work that if something goes wrong, he can't do anything about it anyway. And that is part of his decompress. Is that the same yeah. with you going to Jersey? Yeah. Uh, when the when the when it's nighttime, you know, like there's no major city lights, there's no crazy music blaring, there's no. It's just quiet. You know, like even in their biggest city, and I say biggest with quotations, it's not, it's a, an island with a hundred thousand people on it. Like, it's just quiet. It's quiet during the day. It's quiet at night. Um, and you can go there and genuinely just be in silence, you know, and that's hard to get where I live. I live in, in the city in Philadelphia. You can't see the stars at night because of the pollution and stuff, you know, but you can go to a place like that and there's nothing blocking it. Like, Everything is beautiful all the time. I remember after one show, uh, we would uh, wrestle at a venue on that island that was – it was like a surf venue. Like, you know, like they had a bar and, and a music venue attached to it. But, like, it was popular because it was a place where you could surf at, like that side of the, the island. Um, but the tide is out and it's nighttime and I'm out in the water because I wanted to walk away from the party happening after the show. And just kind of, like, take it in. And the ocean floor, because of the way the moonlight had hit it, it looked like space. Like – the ripples in the ground and just the way everything was kind of visually looking, it looked like I was on another planet. I had walked so far away from the venue out into the water because the tide was out that it felt like I was in some place that was didn't exist anywhere else in the world. And that is something that will always stick with me. Like that moment where I can kind of look look around and feel like I'm in a completely different planet almost. It's something that uh, you know I'll always take, I'll always have with me. You've traveled all over the world uh, wrestling and you retired back in June. It was a very sudden announcement of retirement and it was surrounded by a lot of a lot of other bad things happening in the wrestling world at that time to cut through it. What was the moment where you decided, I actually don't want to wrestle anymore, I'm done? I had, um, this is something I talked about my wife a while ago. I wanted to retire by the time I was 30 if I didn't do what I wanted to do in wrestling. Not because I thought 30 was like, uh you're old and you know that's when you have to stop but i just know i'm beat up i'm broken like i've, I've done martial arts my whole life i played sports as a kid racked up a lot of injuries um and i still kept going and i remember uh wanting to having a sit down conversation with my wife back in um 2018 being just unhappy with where i was at even in chicago wanting to leave and all that and there was a time where i switched my mask up to the style um what i refer to as the ouroboros where uh, I got rid of the classic head. I still wore it for places that wanted me to wear it, but I switched to an open eye format. I completely changed my look up and the way that I portrayed my character. And that kind of reinvigorated me. I had kind of lost my love. You know, I'd lost my smile, so to speak. You know, the quote, um, very famous wrestling line. Uh, and uh, I didn't want to do it anymore necessarily. Uh, and uh, you realize that somewhere along the line, when you're that unhappy and you ha you have to do so much work, uh, there's other things in your life that are probably also feeding into you being unhappy. 
Um, there was definitely a lot of depression associated with it that I'd never taken care of. You know, like there was definitely some mental health issues that, and this is not just a me thing. That's a thing that we tend to do in pro wrestling kind of ignore because of the industry that we're in and the things that we kind of force ourselves to do. You have to be a bit uh, masochistic to be a pro wrestler, right? There's a level of um, self-harm that we do to ourselves every single time we perform that we have to accept. Um, and that kind of, if you don't manage your own mental health, if you don't manage your own like kind of internal being, you can kind of fall victim to that stuff over time and it really affects you. Um, and uh, yeah, there's just a lot of little things throughout life that kind of built up and that was a decision that um, was necessary without a doubt. Did you feel like you, you, could you talk there about sort of falling out of falling, falling out of favor, falling out of love, losing your smile um, yeah. with wrestling? What was it that caused that? Uh, we go from my... talking about how much you love life in the Channel Islands and being that free and that away. And it's a shame that we, we jump from that to you just losing that passion for it. And I was curious as to what had caused that change uh, in you. A lot of it had to do with my time in Chikara, to be honest with you. And it, I, there's a lot I'm grateful for. And I'm not ever going to speak badly about my time performing in front of an audience. I absolutely loved that aspect of what I was doing. But I didn't like what I was and what I was doing within the company and how it uh, essentially um, drained everything that I had as a human being. Like, there's a lot of stuff that I will always, um, that will go unspoken that I did that nobody will ever know for that. Not just for that company, but um, just overall for wrestling, uh, whether it be with the gear making, you know, like we ran, we did all the gear making for the company. I was teaching there. Uh, I did a lot of video editing and, and, and stuff for the company. Um, a lot of the Crucible stuff even was stuff that came out of my computer that came from my home that I that I created and built that would never get credit for. That would never, um, nobody would ever know that I have done or my wife has done. Um, hell, even, you know, uh, without getting too deep into it, you know, like my wife is part of the Crucible angle as Strix uh, in the, the videos that were leading up to our reveal and was fired from the company for uh, promoting her music that she made for the for the crucible angle so there was just a lot of little things that just what was un that because of how dedicated i was to where i was at with the company that led into other stuff that kind of made me essentially fall out because i was unhappy with where i was at which led me to change the character which led me to other companies which is where you saw from out of nowhere i appeared all over the indies again because i was tired of where i was at and what i was doing I didn't want to be there anymore, but I felt a level of, um, I don't, I'm drawing a blank on the right word, but I had to, I had all the people that I was helping train and stuff that I felt like I had to be there for, you know, not, I'm not blamed, but not, it's not their fault, the damn happiness and stuff, but you know, it happens, man. Uh, some places just you grow out of and, you know, you stay in relationships too long sometimes because you're comfortable and sometimes it's to your, you know, like in this case, it was to my own detriment. And more mental health. To to go behind the curtain, like coming to chat to you today, one of the things that I was going to talk about, and, and you know, I even used some of the language early on where I said we'll celebrate your time at Chikara. But uh, as we're talking, you know, I've realised it wasn't the happiest of times for you. So uh, before I go anywhere else, I want to apologise for uh, bringing it up in the way that I did, and if it, it felt like if it was something you didn't want to talk about. So no, no, not at all. I like I said I will happily talk about everything that's happened in front of the curtain. You know, like because there were genuine things that I loved about I got to wrestle El Generico there. I got to work with um, uh, uh, I've got to work with the Young Bucks. I've got to work with 
excuse me, uh, guys like Player Uno. I've got to work with Claudio Castagnoli. Mean, I got to wrestle some of the most amazing performers that I that exist in the world today. There's so much that I loved about my time performing in a ring. All of my animosity comes from what happened behind the curtain. Um, that you know, I will not let affect what I did what I did in front of the camera because what I did in front of the camera I enjoyed. When you officially announced your retirement, how did you feel? Uh, it was a lot. Uh, there's, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm moving on to something else. Uh, there's a lot in my life. Obviously, like I've done video editing, not just for wrestling, but that's what I went to college for. Uh, and I'm still doing video editing now for my wife and her uh, live streams. Uh, there's obviously gear making and stuff going on that I've been doing now for years. There's a lot of things that I have my hands in that I enjoy doing, that I want to be able to do, that I want to be able to focus on. And essentially saying that out loud uh, and being able to do that, uh, I would say in a way I gave myself permission, you know, to be able to pursue those other things without feeling guilty about it. I want to talk about your mass making because uh, you, uh, as you say, you've made ring attire for for wrestlers all over the world, uh, masks and other. I know you and your your wife recently made some stuff for Jessica Havoc, which looks amazing. Um, where did that strand of things come from, from for creating ring attire and masks? When when did that start? Uh, my wife is the kind of seamstress where her grandmother was a seamstress, her mother was a seamstress. She grew up working in a theater with her mom. You know, like she's been a she's been sewing her whole life. So um, there came a time where this was during the shutdown angle of Chikara, um, where my gear maker had fell through and I needed a set of gear from out of nowhere. Like my gear maker was supposed to have gear in a few weeks for me and just told me they can't have it. I'm fucked. I need gear um, for my return under like the white set of gear that I used to have, the Undead Ophidian. And uh, she made it for me. And once she made one set of gear for me, and other wrestlers were like, oh, where'd you get that gear from? It kind of turned into, well, yeah, she makes stuff, and she'll make stuff for this guy, and she'll make stuff for this guy. And then now, this is 2013, when it first happened, um, and it slowly snowballed into, well, maybe we can do it as a business. Because my wife, at the time, was a full-time burlesque dancer uh, and making costumes regularly anyway. Because when you're burlesque, you're making costumes, new costumes all the time to perform in front of audiences. Um, and... Uh, she also made costumes for other performers and such, too. But, uh, yeah, it turned in from her making just a single set of gear for me to making it for others. And then I got to the point where we were investing in our business and I was helping, you know, kind of like fund the, uh, all the industrial machines we have in our home and upgrading all of our equipment uh, with wrestling as well. And I was investing in that because I knew there would come a time where um, I could stop working my nine to five job and move into that aspect of professional wrestling. Um, because there's more to wrestling than what goes on in front of the camera, right? There are so many aspects. A majority of wrestling happens behind the scenes. You know, like we spend in three hours, you know, at an indie show if you're unlucky. Hopefully only like two to two and a half hours, you know, at a total indie show uh, wrestling. But for the rest of the weeks leading up to that, there's so much work happening behind the scenes. And that's what I really love about professional wrestling, the stuff that goes on behind the curtain and how to, you know, how fabric, how the fabric we choose uh, helps manipulate a live audience or helps them determine who and what you are. You know, it helps kind of influence the way they see a, a persona or the way that we put together a video package, how it, you know, generates a feeling out of you of joy or animosity or disgust or whatever, you know, whatever it is we're aiming for, for you to feel about a specific performer. 
I love that aspect of entertainment, how we manipulate media, how we manipulate fashion, how we uh, how we manipulate all the other aspects of what we do to make you feel the way you do when it comes time for the 10 minutes that I have to perform for you in the ring. What makes a good wrestling mask? A lot of people are afraid to go all in on what they are. And what I mean by that is they don't want to be too colorful or too gimmicky or too anything. But if you're going to get to the point where you're a masked performer and you're going to wear a mask, well, you're already like it's this is a blank canvas to do with whatever you want and not being able to not being afraid to go all in is very important. You know, like you don't necessarily have to be cartoony to be visually appealing. You know, you don't have to um, be realistic to be or like use realistic materials to look realistic. And you know, like there's a lot of things that you can do and not being able for not being afraid to go all in on what your gimmick is and what your gear. I'm sorry, not gimmick on what your gear looks like is very important. Um I think also understanding like contrasting colors and there's a lot of things as far as like theory for like the way something should look, but um, the colors that you choose, the placement of these symbols, the, the shape of your eyes, all these things matter to the way somebody is going to portray you. You know, the slant of an eye from like one direction to another, like a little more slanted down inward, right? Makes you look a little more evil versus pulled back and, you know, like straight kind of like gives you more of a, um, uh, approachable look and you know like how small your eyes are how big they are on top of the colors that you choose to surround it like there's so many aspects of it that people ignore when they're talking to a gear maker you know that uh, i have to constantly explain to them it's the subtle things that make all the difference and it's stuff that like also the obvious things that sometimes people miss like you say it's like positioning of the eyebrows and the shape of the face that can denote a good guy a bad guy a, a you know a hero or rudo it just it changes so subtly is that who would you say and i can't say the best because it's too broad a palette to to pick a color from but who would you say has one of the best masks in wrestling uh if we're going modern day uh there was a few dudes who i really really like one is drago when i mentioned going all in on what you are there is no doubt what that you know what drago is that dude is clearly a dragon you know like there's no if ands or buts about it you don't you won't ever second guess that uh and i think right stuff like that is very important like that is wrestling i mean that's also very lucha libre as well you know like he's embodying a, a you know a very animalistic traits to become what he is uh drago is a really good example i like when it comes to like modern day masks like that alongside like even what great muda is doing now like the kind of like the silicone leather mask that he wears on occasion that have like the claw like the kind of like alien kind of claw stuff on them uh uh older masks i love the simplistic look of classic lucha like obviously like guys like blue demon and stuff is really iconic but i like the generation of stuff after that i really like the big horn uh, trend that was happening out of the late 80s and early 90s with guys like Liger and Psychosis uh, and stuff like that that have these giant, you know, horns coming off of their masks um, because it, it reads a lot to an audience. Like you can get you can be in the nosebleed seats and know that that dude is larger than life because he's got these giant attachments to his costume that make him larger than what he what they really are. And I love stuff like that as well.
Next week is the penultimate episode of Desert Island Graps for 2020, and it features European wrestling star, Germany's own John Klinger, who you may know as Bad Bones. Winners never quit and quitters never win. That's the only way to go. So that shot is going out from me to AEW. I'll see you guys soon. Now, before we get to your third and final match, um, we like to spring this on people. Uh, we're going to give you the chance to choose to take with you to the island, as well as three wrestling matches, uh, a movie, an album, and a luxury item. And I always like to spring this because I always like to see what what movie sort of sits at the top of top of people's psyche when I say your favourite of these. So, um, if I was to tell you you could take a movie, what would the movie be that you would take? Uh, this is worse than your three favourite matches. Yeah, I know, right? Isn't it a stinker? Uh. <laughs> I'm going to have to take a step back on that if I can answer the other ones. And of sit course, on of course. Well, do, do the album one first, then. What, what album uh, would we take? So uh, I think I would take an Aesop Rock album, uh, either Labor Days or Impossible Kid. Um, there's something about the way those two albums resonate with me. Like, I can quote almost the entirety of Labor Days um, as an album. And Impossible Kid is a little bit of his newer stuff, so I can't quote it as much as I could Labor Days, but I get the same... Uh, it, it resonates with me the same emotionally because it's clear, like, you know, he's older and um, there's a level of maturity he has to that album that I really enjoy. Um, and I'm a hip hop uh, a fan through and through. And the older stuff can be a little bit more spoken word than his more modern stuff. But both of those albums hold like a special place with me. Uh, there's nothing that I love more than like, you know, lines like off of the uh, off of the track Labor Days. Uh, sorry, nine to fivers anthem. Where he talks about, you know, we the American people hate the nine to five day in day out. While we'd rather be supporting ourselves by being paid to perfect the pastimes that we've harbored, based solely on the fact that it makes us smile if it sounds dope, and uh, like stuff like that. Just like that was my mindset through wrestling. Like I'm doing this not because it makes me money, but because it makes me smile. Right? Like it makes others smile. It, it's there's a joy being had off of just making art because it's fun to make art, not because it makes you money. Is there a particular moment in your life? Obviously, we say how Aesop Rock connects to the wrestling. Is there a particular moment in your life that you have an Aesop Rock song as the soundtrack to? Um, yeah, so uh, one of my first trips to Japan, uh, this one of my first trips to Japan was with Zero One, and uh, I made a specific playlist to take that trip. Uh, and Lucy off of that album was the song, was the song I chose from Aesop, one of the songs I chose from Aesop for that. Um, and along with uh, some songs from like the Addicts and things like that, some uh, no effects and, and I'm a fan of punk music too. But uh, Lucy, uh, there's a line in that song uh, it's, I've never had a dream in my life because a dream is what you want to do, but still haven't pursued. And uh, at that time for me, it's like, I'm doing it. I'm making it right. Like I'm, I, Somebody else paid for me to travel to another country to perform at Kurokin Hall. Like, my debut in Japan was at Kurokin fucking Hall. And, you know, in 2010 with Zero One, uh, where I got to wrestle um, on that tour, I wrestled both uh, Miren Usawa and Hidaka. And Hidaka, obviously, you know, is a legend among and light heavyweights. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, my mind was blown. That was definitely, uh, that's Lucy off of uh, the Labor Days album, for sure. Amazing. Uh, how about a luxury item? Like, so a creature comfort from home. It could be uh, something to 
keep you occupied on the island. It could just be a keepsake that you want to have with you uh, to remember life before the island. Uh, I'll give you some... Uh. Anything over the years. We've had, like, um, some of Creature Comforts. James Storm wants to take toilet paper. Nick Aldis wants to take his Jag just to drive around the island. <laughs> I guess. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a gamer, uh, so I would have to go with a PSP. Nope. And I would choose a PSP over a DS, because I also have a DS. And uh, I'd say PSP because I love the RPGs. And RPGs on the PSP are a little more... Uh, diverse you know you can uh, the final fantasy games especially uh steven dennis is a fan of yours who uh, i mentioned to him that you were coming on and i said i know you're a, you're a big ophidian fan is there anything you want to talk about with him and he mentioned rpgs to me so um which rpg are we talking here which which is the ultimate one i know it's difficult to choose but is there a particular one that that stands out to you uh so uh as like a, a personal favorite, it's not the best RPG I've ever played. There are better ones. But Legend of Dragoon on the PS1 is one of my favorite RPGs ever. Um, I love the, the weird gameplay mechanics that it has. I, I love the story. It's not the best RPG. There are better RPGs I've played fundamentally that I know are better. But I played Legend of Dragoon at the right time when I was a kid and absolutely loved it. Uh, Lost Odyssey on Xbox 360. I'm currently playing Kadelka, which is a survival horror RPG. The Shadow Hearts franchise as a whole, I love. Like, yeah. <coughs> have you? Um, I don't know whether you have you played the Final Fantasy VII remake. I know a lot of people talked about that as sort of something that was sort of kickstarting RPGs into the modern era again. I don't know whether you've played it. Not yet, because I don't own a I don't own a PS4. Mm. I'm, I'm an Xbox player, so it will it is scheduled to come out for Xbox, but I have to wait hold fire on it do you think there's um obviously with a lot of a lot of gaming now seems to revolve around um a lot of online first person shooting a lot of uh massively multiplayer online games rather than like the traditional rpgs stuff that we've talked about today can you see those making a comeback at some point i don't think they've ever gone away i think they've turned into something a bit different if you look at the mass effect franchise mass effect to me that is a great uh modern day rpg while it may not be turn-based and you know what we think of as like classic jrpg stuff uh that is what a modern rpg looks like not andromeda which unfortunately wasn't you know like kind of took a step back but the main line the mass effects one through three uh they did a lot of stuff right they uh and it's what i think fan rpgs can look like today um and there's still I don't. I don't feel it's ever gone away. I feel like there are a lot of games that have taken elements of RPGs and incorporated it. In. Like I play Destiny, um, too, uh, regularly, and uh, that has that is trying to dive deeper into the RPG side of things because that's where you get investment from a personal standing, like being able to custom build your character and create and mold and craft all these specific builds are very RPG. You know, like, those are things that we love RPGs for, and you get a lot of first-person shooters and stuff taking that aspect of RPG and incorporating it. So what you're getting now, just like with pro wrestling, how there isn't just one style of wrestling anymore. You know, you were either, if you were a luchador, you only did Lucha Libre in Mexico. You know, if you were uh, an American pro wrestler, you did the, the classic American, like, you know, brawling style. But you don't get that anymore, right? What we have now on TV, especially with AEW and Ring of Honor and Impact, is this complete hybrid of what wrestling um, you know, needs to look like in the year 2020. 
um, which is that mix of both, you know, guys like Keith Lee who can fly and, you know, beat you up, <laughs> you know, he can power bomb you just as much as he can do a Topic and Hilo, you know, um, Donovan Dijak is another great example of that, uh, uh, guys in AEW like, uh, like Orange Cassidy who can do a little bit of both, you know, who can do like classic American stuff where he can do Lucha Libre, you know, like you got these, what's popular now are guys that can do that. And I think that applies to gaming as well. Little elements of RPG creeping into other gaming styles and platforms and formats because, as we've talked about, talent borrows and genius deals. It ties yep. in, comes all mm-hmm. the way back around. I've got to, I've got to get your movie now before we move on. <laughs> you have I will, you enough yeah, time. I will, <laughs> I will talk uh, all night about all these things that you're bringing up. I would happily talk over and over and over again about everything we're talking about here. Uh, or in, in, in more depth. Uh, but, uh, so my, you, you said movie, that's the last one I have to answer. And, uh, see, that's tough for me. I was delaying it because like, as much as I, 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 I love, I love all movies, uh, throw them into school for, I love cinematography. There's so many movies that on a, it's, whether or not I want to see something visually over and over again, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, of the, um, of stuff from like seventies, Italy, seventies and eighties, Italy, um, like the Giallo films and all that. I love classic kung fu martial arts i love modern day martial arts stuff you know whether it be stuff from like thai uh, thailand and, and and indonesia like the like the tony joss stuff from thailand or the stuff that's happening like like with the raid and headshot movies like that out of indonesia um i love uh classic american stuff i love 80s american uh movies as well stuff with you know stallone and kurt russell like uh it's it's so hard for me to pick something but if i had to i think i would go martial arts because I love, um, it's what I really love, and the the raid, and or raging phoenix being two of my more like modern martial arts films that I really love. Nice, that's diff- that felt like a difficult choice to make, and I respect and that. It really is. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay, you have one final match for your DVD uh, to choose. So we've had John Cena and Eddie Guerrero uh, competing inside a parking lot, or surrounded by by cars um what would you like for your third and final match sir this is not going to be a popular one but it is uh definitely one of my favorite of all time and that is gold dust versus roddy roddy piper from wrestlemania in the hollywood uh parking lot oh the backlot brawl roddy roddy piper facing gold dust who's on the backlot as we speak little puppet made of pine white the gift Life is dying. Pinocchio, 1940. President Piper. It's a poor imitation. But for now, we'll have to do. Ah, but yes. When you're in my back lot, President Piper, it will be the real thing, won't it? Let's, let's, we'll return. 
What's he doing now? Look out, look out! Robbie, Robbie's going after him, I think. Is it just wrestling in parking lots that is the <laughs> is the thing? Is this is, is are we getting a a weird a weird uh, I don't want to use the word kink because they throw that around too long. Uh, but are uh, we are I'm we into wrestling? Sizing the uh, yeah parking lot yeah because <laughs> we could have chucked in Steve Blackman Ken Shamrock Iron Circle match if we're doing that. <laughs> hey man, the, the stuff that even that was happening with the like the Lions Den matches and stuff too. I love yeah I love gimmicks. I love gimmicks in wrestling. I went out of my way to like the Chamber of Horrors matches. From WCW, all the stuff from Halloween Havoc, when uh, when Hogan and Macho Man fought the um, uh, Dungeon of Doom, you know, like uh, the Allegiance to End Hulk Hogan, whatever, whatever the fuck that name was, that uh, <laughs> all that stuff, I absolutely love. I love gimmicks in my wrestling matches. Um, but yeah, that uh, the the Hollywood the, the Backlot Brawl match because it had a little bit of everything, man. I really liked the Goldust character as a kid, um, and I do as an adult. There's a lot of nuanced things they did with his character that um, you don't, you did not get from that time period. And while some of the stuff doesn't necessarily translate to 2020, there's some things that we could we would look back at and go that might have been um, crossing the line, you know, uh, when it comes to certain the ways that we portray characters like Goldust. Um, and obviously, like you know, you'd have a different performer doing that kind of persona now. But we have to take what you can get, you know, when it comes to that time period in that era, you know. Um, but the things about the Goldust character that I really loved, and even before that, his feud with Razor Ramon over the IC title when he had when he got Razor Ramon tattooed on himself, you know, and like went that far as a character. There's just so many little things that I loved about that, and I don't mean love this and like I enjoyed him as a babyface. I genuinely like liked booing him, uh, and as a as a as an adult, I look back fondly on that character and like I actually really liked him. But as a kid, I really liked uh, you know booing him and. Uh, the stuff he did with Piper was just great. And there was a real raw emotion with Piper pulling out a baseball bat, right? And smashing at the car, hosing each other down, even the weird, awkward finish, you know, where, um, or throughout the night they were cutting back to the match and they did the, the OJ Simpson car chase. Oh, uh, the use, the use of the OJ Simpson footage is something that went over my head when I watched it as a young kid, but later on as an adult, greatly appreciated. <laughs> I knew, like, I knew as a kid what that was because I'd seen the OJ stuff. Like, I was, I had watched the OJ stuff on TV with my family. Like, I'd seen that, so I, I knew what that footage was and recognized that. And I, you know, at the time, I didn't understand why necessarily, like, they were doing it, but I knew what that was, and there was like an element of like, oh man, he's just as bad as OJ. You know, like my mind as a kid was associating what was happening with the OJ stuff with that match, and even down to the weird finish where he derobes gold dust in the ring and he's wearing you know lingerie underneath there's just so much weirdness about that match but that match can be talked about and broken down on so many levels that a normal wrestling match can't be you know like a shit up technical match we can talk about the nuances of the movements and stuff but there's a level of storytelling that that match tried to do i'm not saying it was super successful but that it tried to do that we could debate about. Do you think the reaction to that match is different now? Because we've had a whole year, and we started. It's quite nice that we sort of bookend this with this. We had it. We've had a year of cinematic wrestling matches, so people have kind of become used to the idea of these of, of wrestling matches being mini movies. Do you think that match would have a different reaction had it played out today? Yes, without a doubt. Um, I think that. Part of what made that match for me work was seeing – and at the time, I didn't know Goldust 
had been wrestling, you know, for like 15 years or so at that point, right? Like, I didn't know he was Dustin Reynolds for as long as he was. But to me, Goldust was a newer character, right? Like, oh, like, here's like this, right? It's like youth versus, um, I have them drawn a blank a lot. Like, you know, the, the old guard versus the, the, the new guard. In a way, and like this cross, this things that shouldn't work, but Piper was also such a good promo, you know, like there's so many things that worked well that I think you could redo that kind of match now with the right characters and it would be just as fun and entertaining. We might be more accepting of it for sure. Um, but also the character itself wouldn't exist in the same way today as it did back then. Piper still would, but not Goldust. Goldust now is going to look a little different than he did, you know, in the early nineties. And, and certainly be received in a very different way as well. Yes. Um, and res- and respectfully so, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, there are things that we shouldn't do in, in ways that we portray um, what his character was attempting to portray. We should just portray it differently. But I love the idea of a cinemaphile uh, as a performer. Uh, I love the idea of somebody that uh, studied film the way that he did and was the cinephile that he was and how he incorporated movie into, his, you know, that art form. He's stealing from one art form and bringing it to another. You know, in pro wrestling, uh, I want more of that because uh, you don't get that very often. You don't get that. I'm a master of this craft and I'm coming over to this art form with the mastery I have of this craft over here. You know, and he was a master of film or, you know, at least we were told he was. <laughs> and uh, it's been it's been amazing to spend some time with you, uh, a fellow master of your craft. And um, I'd love to send people to where they can find you and your good lady online and to go ahead and plug whatever you want to plug here, Ophidian. Uh Nowadays, you can find myself and my wife uh, on Twitch at twitch.com slash Kate Nix or Kate Nix dot live, where I'm a part of her weekly stream on Tuesday nights. Right now, we're during the off season. We do seven weeks on, five weeks off. Um, we just started the off season, but. Uh, you can catch our replays or the shows that um, I helped craft with her every Tuesday night. Uh, we also do weekly streams out of our s- studio on Thursdays and Saturdays where you get to watch us. So all the things that we make for professional wrestling, we make gear for all types of performers all over the world. Um, you can also catch us on Patreon at patreon.com slash closet champion, um, where we talk about gear making and music and all types of things wrestling related. We have a discord attached to it that is private to that uh, Patreon where you can, come spend and pick our brains about everything not just um gear related but of pressing as well if that's what you'd like to do um but it's a way for other makers to communicate we have a lot of gear makers on our patreon with us uh, part of our discord as well so we have a large community um of gear makers and, and just makers in general not just of gear but masks and other things that we make um in that community to be able to ping pong ideas off of and to communicate with about how to do something um, or you can just follow me across all social media at Ophidian Cobra, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all the stuff. And of course, I forgot to plug the YouTube, the Closet Champion YouTube channel where you can find all of the videos we do teaching you how to make masks and other gear related stuff. Does it feel nice to still be playing such a, 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 a prominent role within the wrestling world without any chance of breaking your jaw? <laughs> the the biggest thing I have to worry about now is sticking pins into my fingers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. For all the wrestling headlines in just 10 minutes, search Cultaholic Wrestling News on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 